Welcome to the Personal Injury Pod from St. John's Chambers. Today we'll be discussing claims for lost years and specifically lost years claims for children. I'm Ben Handy and I'm very glad to say that today I'm joined by a man who knows his Donahue's from his Stevenson's, one of the founder members of St. John's back in 1978, a silk in not one but two practice areas and a legend of the Bristol Bar, our very own Christopher Sharp KC. Hello Christopher. Hello Ben, I'm not sure I can live up to that. How do you like that intro? <laughs> Uh, I know you're no stranger to public speaking, but how many podcasts have you done in your 45 years at the bar? I have done no podcasts at all. This could be the start of a lucrative new direction for you. Yes. Listeners won't need me to tell them that this episode was inspired by a pair of recent articles in APIL's PI Focus magazine by two men at the very top of their games, thought leaders and inspirations to many. Uh, Do you know who they were, Christopher? Well, I can't begin to guess. (laughs) I'll make sure that links to those articles by Ben Handy and Christopher Sharp KC are in the show notes. But those articles were in turn inspired by the case last year of Sean Sheffield, uh, one of the key PI cases of the last year, which deals with, amongst many other things, lost year's claims for child claimants. And that's an issue that will now go before the Supreme Court this year for long overdue consideration. But Christopher, it's you that our listeners really want to hear from. So why don't you start by telling us a bit about the basics? What are Lost Year's claims? Well, Lost Year's claims have um, a lengthy history, but in effect, they are a claim that uh, can be made for the earnings or the financial losses, uh, which arise in the years when the claimant will no longer be around uh, due to his premature death or her premature death. They represent a contentious area, uh, in particular where there is difficulty assessing them, and they have been uh, a subject of some interest to the courts for nearly a 100 years, with the initial claims showing themselves back in the 1930s. The starting point and the general rule is still that there's no claim or no right of action on the back of wrongful death. It's an area that's grown by way of incremental exceptions to that general rule, isn't it? Well, not really a common law. Common law, there is no claim arising out of death, so that any claim that there may have been died with the death of the injured party. And so what happened historically was that although there were some rather strange common law exceptions, uh, something called deodans back in the 19th century, there was no claim on behalf of, for instance, the dependents of an injured person who was killed as a result of the negligence of the defendant. And the consequence of that was that there was a perceived lack of justice. And in 1846, Lord Campbell's Act was introduced as an exception to the common law rule and allowed for dependents to uh, make a claim in respect of the wrongful death. Lord Campbell's Act, is that the original Fatal Accidents Act? That's the 1846 Fatal Accidents Act, yes. And before that... We're talking pre-industrial revolution or around the industrial revolution, aren't we? Well, we're talking about a period when heavy industry was giving rise to all sorts of problems in terms of the sorts of injuries that were occurring. But I think the primary driver appears to have been the railways and uh, accidents which happened on the railways and death and injury which resulted from those accidents. And the Deodans principle involved the surrender uh, on behalf of of the 
person responsible for the death of chattels that were the direct instrument of death. And when that chattel represented a very expensive item such as a steam engine, the railway operators began to see some major difficulties in having to surrender or redeem the price or value of uh, that chattel if a inquest jury ordered that it should be uh, used to provide funds for the dependents. Is, is that what would happen? Would, 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 a, well, in would principle, a, a train be, see, be given up by the company and then effectively bought back by the company? Well, in principle, the item that was the instrument of death was actually surrendered to the Crown. But as I understand it, what happened was that the juries would make an order whereby the, the value of the item uh, went to the dependents. And I think I'm not entirely sure about exactly what the mechanics were, but I think uh, in principle, the item was surrendered and had to be bought back or its value had to be redeemed by the company. So the railway companies didn't like that clearly. And I think that was that right or that power for juries was given up as a quid pro quo for the introduction of Lord Campbell's Act. Is that right? And that's my understanding, yes. We are going back nearly 200 years. Hey, you, even you, even you don't go back that far. So everything seems to go back to the Industrial Revolution when it comes to personal injury law. But claims for lost years in particular, arise sometime later, as you say, 1930s odd? Yes, during the 1930s, there was um, perception that the injured person uh, had lost an expectation of life and somehow the expectation of life had to be valued. And there was a, my understanding of the position at the time is that there was a difference of opinion between whether you valued the expectation of life simply on the basis of happiness and the enjoyment of life or whether you valued it on the basis of what the injured person would have earned and therefore a pecuniary value be attributed to the life that he had lost, to the years that he had lost. Uh, if you look at it in the second way, then the injured person has a right of action for the losses which will occur during his life and for the earnings and the pecuniary benefits that he would have accrued during the period that he's lost. And then when he dies, then that cause of action would be lost because until 1934, a cause of action died with the person who held it. 1934 is when the Law Reform Act's introduced and you've now got claims for dependents. Well, the dependency came out of the oh, Fatal, Fatal Accidents, Accidents Act. The, Sorry. The, the Law Reform Act, Miscellaneous Provisions Act, 1934, was uh, significantly different because it gave rise to a, a survival yes. of the cause of action that the injured person would have had. Mm. And, and that's the significant difference between the Law Reform Act claim and a Fatal Accidents Act claim. Fatal Accidents Act claim is a statutory creature which is designed for the benefit of the dependents and therefore is calculated on the basis of the dependency, whereas the Law Reform Act claim is a survival of the injured person's own claim and therefore will be calculated on a different basis. Yes. So when did the House of Lords really get to grips with lost year's claims? The source of the current law it lies in Pickett's case against the railway executive. And that was the, the case where Lord Wilberforce in particular um, decided, resolving a number of issues that had been banging backwards and forwards between the courts for the better part of 40 years before that, that the 
deceased person or the person who was going to be deceased should have an entitlement to the earnings that they were going not to enjoy. And he concluded, and Lord Salmon, Lord Eden Davis supported him in this, uh, that that was a loss which had a pecuniary value which could be assessed. In those days, the mechanics by which you assess these losses was significantly less sophisticated than they are now. And so consequently, it was much more difficult to get a clear idea of what the value of those claims were going to be. And that in particular has an impact when one comes to look at children's cases where it's much more difficult to assess what the future value of the earning capacity of a child would have been. But Pickett was dealing with an adult and the subsequent cases gradually chipped away at the reservations that were being expressed at that time about other areas of claim. So we're talking late 70s, early 80s? Uh, Yes, the um, picket was 1980. And you started in practice in 75, I think, is that right? Uh, I was called in 75, yes. I started my pupillage in October of 1975, What was a young Christopher Sharp making of this at the time? Did it feel new and important or was it just kind of the background noise of... Uh, Well, the young Christopher Sharp was not actually terribly fussed about (laughs) fatal accident claim (laughs) because um, he was dealing with um, prosecutions in the magistrate's court (laughs) at that stage. Um, I think what I became interested in was a little bit later, by which time Pickett had been established. And I became more interested once we got to cases like Harris and Empress Motors and Coward and Comex and those sorts of cases where the manner of the calculation of dependencies was being explored by the courts. Shortly after Pickett then, the question arose about whether to extend, whether we can extend lost years claims to first teenagers and then children. Yeah. And I think the next case in time was, is it Gamel or Gamel? It was Gamel and Wilson. Um, Yes. And that was a case which decided that a claim could be made by a teenager. The uh, Gamel and Wilson involved two separate claims. One was uh, on behalf, they were both dead at the time that the claim was brought, but one had been 15 uh, when he was killed and the other was 22. And um, the claims that were made were on behalf of their estates under the 1934 Act. And the important uh, element in the reasoning of the court there was that the speculative nature of the task of assessing the loss was not regarded as in itself a bar to recovery. The view was expressed that in all probability for a young child there wasn't, or the younger the deceased, the less likely there was to be any evidence to sustain a claim. But that was an evidential problem rather than a jurisprudential problem. And that claim was what, 15, I think? Um, The younger one was 15, the older one was 22. Okay. And in the way of things, lawyers always testing the edges. We then come on to Croak, Croak and Wiseman, Wiseman, which involved an eight-year-old? Well, he was uh, seven years old at trial, but he'd been injured when he was 21 months. And he had a life expectancy, which was fairly uncertain. It was somewhere between 20 and 40 years. And the Court of Appeal rejected the claim on the basis that there were no dependents. But Pickett had already decided that it didn't matter whether 
the injured person had any dependents or not, because the claim was the injured party's claim and not his dependents' claim. If it had been a fatal accident act claim, then it would have been a claim on behalf of the defendants, because it was a claim on behalf of the individual and subsequently his estate. Uh, then it was his claim, and it didn't matter whether he had a dependence or not. And that's the case even now. An, ad- an adult doesn't need to worry about whether there's dependence or even if there are going to be dependence. That's right. And so consequently, if you get to a... I mean, the rather strange thing is Lord Justice Griffiths in Crook and Wiseman suggested that there was a what he described as a compelling social reason for allowing the claim in Pickett's case was the provision for dependence. But it's quite plainly not what Lord Wilberforce was saying, nor indeed what Edmund Davis or Salmon were saying. And he, Lord Justice Griffiths, then went on to say that the House of Laws had felt compelled by the decision in Pickett to uh, allow the claim by the claimant's estates in Gamel. But equally, that's manifestly not the case. It's a very strange decision, um, Crook and Wiseman, because it is just so manifestly inconsistent with either Pickett or with Gamel, as has been observed by a number of cases subsequently. Yeah, it's not even one of those cases where you can crowbar it into consistency. They really are, on their face, inconsistent, those decisions. Yeah. The way in which um, the Court of Appeal has dealt with it has been to say, well, we are, there's nothing we can do about it because we're bound by uh, Crook and Wiseman because Lord Justice Griffiths was making a decision uh, as a matter of principle and not simply on a factual basis. And therefore, given that Gamble and Pickett were both cited in argument in um, Crook and Wiseman, the Court of Appeal has not subsequently felt able to depart from Crook and Wiseman. So one of the issues raised by the Court of Appeal in Crook is the absence of even notional dependence. And the other is this speculative nature of the inquiry. Yeah, the absence of dependence is um, is an interesting one because in uh, Crook and Wiseman, the child had a life expectancy which would take him into adulthood. But uh, because he was so badly injured, catastrophically injured, it was quite plain that he would never actually have dependence. I suppose one could argue that medical science might have done something which would have given rise to the possibility of dependency, um, dependence being born, but it seems very unlikely. Yeah. But it didn't matter in Pickett. Yeah, but it didn't matter because of Pickett, yeah. In the early 80s, the Law Reform Act was amended, wasn't it, to explicitly remove the right of the estate to claim for lost years on behalf of a deceased claimant? Well, no. The Administration of Justice Act 1982... Uh, was, amongst other things, was designed to prevent the duplication of claims on behalf on the one side of the estate and on the other side of the dependents, because you could land up with a situation where if the injured person, by his will, had left his estate to those who were not his dependents, then the beneficiaries under his estate under his will, would benefit from the Law Reform Act claim and then the dependents could claim under the Fatal Accidents Act claim for their dependency, which would derive from the provision that he was making during his life. And then the uh, defendants would land up paying twice. And that was something that obviously had to be stopped and was. 
So it didn't. It's not an amendment that came from the same place or from the same concerns that ended up directing the Court of Appeals actions in in Croke. No, completely different problem. Yeah, I mean the 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 important thing to remember is that the claims on behalf of a dependent and the claim on behalf of an estate or the injured person while he's still alive in for the future when he will not be alive, are jurisprudentially entirely different. The claim which is made for lost years is the injured person's own claim for what he has lost, which is the opportunity to devolve his estate and his earnings and so forth in the way in which he wants to. Whereas the claim on behalf of the dependents is entirely a creature of statute and solely arising out of the principles that have derived from the various Fatal Accidents Acts and the various iterations of the Fatal Accidents Acts that there have been. Consequently, the calculation is different. So, for instance, if you're looking at how you calculate the lost years claim and how you calculate the dependency claim, uh, you will have two separate calculations. So if, if you're looking at a lost years claim, then you have got to deduct the claimant's own living expenses and the way in which you calculate those living expenses before deducting them will be different depending on whether you're looking at it um, as a lost years claim and whether you're looking at it as a dependence claim. It's generally a 50% deduction in lost years and something like a quarter to a third depending on whether there are uh, children in the marriage for or the relationship yes. for the dependency claim. And, and that is, that's a, a typical situation that is entirely dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of the case. Why the difference? Because if you are a dependent, then you are benefiting from, for instance, a roof over your head, or you are benefiting from shared expenditure. So, uh, to take an example, the, the typical example is that you, in a fatal accident claim, dependency claim, is that a third of the earnings go to support the deceased. A third are for joint benefit between the claimant or the deceased and his dependents. And the third is solely for the dependents. Now, if you take the third off for the injured party, the, the deceased, you're left with two thirds and the dependency is therefore the two thirds. And that is because you don't only have the benefit of half the house or half the, the mortgage or whatever it happens to be, you, you've got poor you, are dependent, you are dependent on the whole of that yeah. as a dependent. So you've got the third, which is solely for you, and the third, which is shared with the, with the deceased. So that's the two thirds. But if you are looking at a um, lost years claim, then you take the third, which is the deceased, and one half of the third, so it's 50 percent of whatever it is, um, but around about 50% as a deduction. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's not really the issue we were talking about, but I'm interested by it because it's one of those things that leads representative lawyers down that awkward path with clients with shortened life expectancies where they've got to have those conversations about whether it's better to claim while they're alive or leave it until they've died because the dependency claim will almost invariably be bigger. Yes. Because in the same way, you can't claim and, for and, loss of services. And, and, unless, unless the deceased spouse is a high earner. Yeah. In which case, the dependency claim is probably not going to be higher. But in the same way, you can't make a claim for loss of services, generally. 
when the injured party is still alive? No, you can't make a. You can make no claim for loss of services. That's a decision called FIPS. You can make no claim during the last years for those services because the services chat won't be around to, to give them. But you can claim under the dependency claim yeah. for loss of services and also the inchoate contribution to, for instance, parenting. I've definitely seen arguments, or at least theoretical arguments, that low and guys might give you a route to claiming loss of services for claimants who are still alive. Yeah, that's, um, that's a slightly different situation because you can evaluate what has been lost um, in those circumstances. Certainly, I see no reason why you can't make a dependency claim in those circumstances. Let's go back to child claimants. Yes. The position for 40 plus years now has been that child claimants, certainly children under the age of 15, can't confidently bring claims for lost years. Correct. The courts have wrestled with that, haven't they? At least a couple of cases have got very close. Well, um, yes, uh, they have. Um, Iqbal and Whips Cross University Trust was one where Lord Justice Gage made it very clear that, in his view, Crook and Wiseman was wrong and permission was given to appeal that to um, the House of Lords. But, sadly, the appeal was settled. And then Mrs Justice Lang in Totten and King's College Hospital Foundation came to the same conclusion, but she found that she was bound by... Crook and Wiseman. Um, and then there was the case of J.R. and Sheffield, which most people know of in the context of the accommodation claim part of it. But that was a slightly different case. Although the claimant had been injured as a child, the actual claim wasn't brought until uh, he was an adult, uh, and although he was um, lacking in capacity. But he had survived and he had survived into adulthood and he had demonstrated a character uh, which the judge concluded would have meant that he would have been quite successful in pursuing a career of his own. And so his life expectancy, in fact, was quite extensive, but he wasn't going to die prior to or during his retirement. And so consequently, the lost years claim was allowed um, in respect of pension. The defendants appealed, and of course there was also the appeal in respect to the accommodation claim, but the appeal was settled, so we didn't get a, um, a resolution. But the, the circumstances of J.R. and Sheffield were such that the factual matrix was capable of being distinguished from Crook and Wiseman, which was how the judge got around um, what was otherwise binding authority on him. But the key feature there was that you had the claimant bringing their claim at an age where they were... Where he'd demonstrate that he he was going to survive. I mean, one one of the arguments that people like Lord Justice Griffiths had advanced was you don't know whether this uh, child is going to survive into adulthood. And obviously, J.R. had survived into adulthood, so that removed part of the uncertainty. That seems an odd thing, though, because you're, you've presumably got evidence about what the life expectancy is. There's always a risk that someone won't survive, but yeah. you've got evidence about a specific age, haven't you? As I say, Crook and Wiseman's a very odd decision. Yeah. But I suppose this, this, this point brings the absurdity of the law into focus, because all a child claimant has to do is wait long enough 
before bringing their claim. Well, this is the point that was made by Mr Justice Ritchie in the recent decision of C against Sheffield, uh, which is a fantastic decision. It's a tour de force, as far as the judge is concerned, because he covers so many of the things that are crucial elements of brain injury cases. This was the particular point that, if you look at Gamel, uh, where you've got a 15-year-old and that claim is sustainable, uh, and you've got Crook and Wiseman, where the child is seven at the time of trial and that's not sustainable, where do you draw the line between the young child and the teenager? Well, do you draw it at 12? And if so, why? Uh, and just makes no sense at all. And then, as you say, the nonsense is becomes even more pronounced when you can say of the seven-year-old, well, just wait for another eight years until you're 15 and you can bring the claim then yeah. and succeed. So it, it's a nonsense. I have a question. You have an authority like this, which very much favours defendants. Defendants facing cases involving children have every interest in keeping this away from the Supreme Court, don't they? Yes. How do cases like this ever get to court if one party is so incentivized, so the benefits so much from the status quo that all they need to do is keep settling these cases? How do they get to the Supreme Court? I think it's a bit of a lottery, really. I mean, I've only done a couple of cases at that level, and it was due in one case to the simply outrageous situation arose in relation to um, damages for rape. And in the other, simply to the refusal of the insurers to settle. And so it is is—it is largely a, a question of luck, um, because you can't force people to litigate at that level. No. And I suppose what you do have is, with child claimants, you've got the court having to approve settlements. So I suppose the court has some input about whether to approve or not. And if the law is absurd enough, the court might just refuse to approve, possibly? Well, what um, certainly what appears to be the case in those cases that have settled is that the defendants have made an offer which, to all intents and purposes, concedes the claim, right. but avoids a decision at um, a high judicial level. Yeah, so I mean, if the decision is always enough. It's always open to the insurers to concede a claim, but if they do it on the basis of um, a settlement where there is no decision on the point in question, then they avoid having any precedent established against them. Yeah. I suppose I can't really think of too many other examples of something that's so egregious or benefits one side so much that they just would never let it get to the Supreme Court. But there must be some. Yes. Um, I can't immediately off the top of my head think of any, but yes, I think there are quite a few. Interesting. And so C and Sheffield... You were telling us about that, and it's a case you've been thinking about quite a lot in the last year. Well, it's, it, I've, I have had a very strong view uh, for a number of years about the nonsensical finding in Crook and Wiseman. I, I long thought it was wrong, um, and I've watched these other cases like Iqbal and um, Tottenham and so forth look as if they're going to make some sensible progress in the law. And now, at long last, Ms Justice Ritchie has um, actually taken the bull by the horns and granted permission for the appeal to go forward. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Supreme Court have to say about it. And I just hope that there's not going to be any um, generous offer on part <laughs> of uh, the, um, the NHS Trust 
which will avoid it. Um, it, It's interesting, in fact, that during the argument on whether or not there should be permission granted to, to leapfrog to the Supreme Court, the written arguments on behalf of the defendants, to all intents and purposes, conceded the strength of the arguments on behalf of the claimant. And what they were saying was more, it's always been the law that you can't claim as a child for lost years, therefore the claim should be rejected and therefore there is no sound basis for appealing it, rather than grappling with the jurisprudential issue, which they knew they couldn't win. I think I know the answer to this, but what's your bet on what the Supreme Court decide? I would be very surprised if the Supreme Court did not grant the claim of a child to the lost years. I would imagine that they would take the line that, as a matter of principle, a lost year's claim is one that can be pursued on behalf of a child. But as a matter of evidence, it's going to be usually very difficult to prove that it has any significant value. Why is that? We always, we're very used now to using siblings or family earnings information as as a marker. And even if you just took minimum wage as the likely earnings and applied a healthy deduction to that, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Well, it is. But if you are looking at a deduction for living expenses, the lower your projected earnings, the greater the proportion of living expenses that are going to have to be deducted. So if, for instance, you take a living wage, then pretty well all of the living wage is going to be eaten up by the living expenses of the individual concern. Even if that's true, even if you're left with a few thousand pounds a year over a long period, it's a lot of money, isn't it, to any normal person? Although you you also... The defendants are also left with arguments about um, deductions for other contingencies. So you've got your, your classic deductions for contingencies in respect of earnings anyway. Your table A to D factors, those... Your a, table right. A to D factors. But it, where you have... Um, a child, um, there may be all sorts of other potential arguments that you can advance for other contingencies and deductions mm-hmm. as well. So you reduce the, the multiple. But there again, if um, a judge came to the conclusion that he or she was unable to, to calculate the loss on the basis of multiplier, multiplicand basis, there's always a blamer award that could be made instead. The thrust of the decisions these days is that just because it's difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't try, isn't it? Correct. And as I say, there is a difference between whether as a matter of principle, a matter of jurisprudence, if you like, the claim is sustainable and whether in practice it is provable. Mm. And that's going to depend on the particular facts of the particular case. But it, as, as you say, it is now far easier with all of the actuarial information that we now have t- typically to bring to bear on these cases. It's much easier to establish some sort of value. And it's very interesting. If you look back, there's a case by decision by Lord Parker back uh, shortly after the Second World War, or even during the Second World War, but a long time ago anyway. And the the nature of the assessment of the value is so unscientific and inchoate uh, as to be almost laughable today. And yet this was a very respected judge just using the technique of the time. Yeah. If you'll forgive me, I'm interested and I'm going to pick your brain because I've got you. Um, we touched earlier on some of the differences between the claim, the value of the claim while the claimant is still alive 
and the value of the claim after they've died. Mm -hmm. And so as a matter of tactics, we are sometimes driven to making that decision with our clients. Do we issue now or do we wait? Yes. Um, And very often the answer is wait, just because the dependency claim is often more valuable. Yes. If you've got an injured claimant who needs help now, needs money now effectively, but you think the claim is more valuable when they've died, what do you do? Well, there is at least one case where the solution to that problem was to seek an interim payment to a significant proportion of the overall value of the case and then adjourn the lost years aspect of the claim to be pursued by the dependents under the Fatal Accidents Act. You have to keep your eye on limitation, of course. So you issue for the purposes only of getting an interim while the person's alive. Yeah. And I suppose you are you when you're when the court's assessing the value of the claim, it's got in mind the fact that there'll be a dependency claim one day. Well you can There are examples, as you know, where you can, if you're making a claim on behalf of a child, where you can have the assessment of the damages up to, for instance, shall we say, the age of 12 or 14 or something of that nature, and then adjourn the balance of the claim to a later stage because the child's physical, mental and cognitive development uh, may mean that you currently have no idea what the prognosis is going to be and what the child's needs and so forth are going to be. So in the same way, you can deal with the current value of the of the claim while the individual is still alive, but leave the future loss aspect to be dealt with at a later stage. But one of the important things to remember is that you must not settle the entirety of the claim, because if you do that, you prevent any fatal accidents that claim. You prejudice that. So it's got to be that the discrete part which can be pursued by the dependents is um, is adjourned to be dealt with after death. Interesting. It's a minefield. Hmm. And, are we, and are you, after death, just making an, an amendment to the claim form and the particulars yeah. so that it's a claim on behalf of the estate at that point and the dependents? And, well, it's, we, and or, if there's anything left so far as the estate's concerned yeah. but by the dependents under the FAA. But not a completely new claim, just amending the existing claim. Yeah. Interesting. And that's a practical problem we deal with in practice. But I'm sort of posing the question, conscious that it could be a stupid one. Is there any value or merit in regularising the position so that the claim is worth exactly as much, whether it's brought when someone is alive, as it will be when they're dead? Well, Lord Wilberforce in Pickett thought that that's what he was doing. Because he actually said in terms that he was trying, that they, he thought that what they were doing was bringing um, lost years calculations and dependency calculations in, in line with each other. Um, the, however, uh, there's a decision, I think it's by Lord Justice Stuart Smith in the Phipps case, I think is where he says it. He says that the trouble is, as I've already said, um, there are two very different jurisprudential bases for the claims. So if you're looking at matters of principle, it's a bit difficult to see how you can deliberately bring the two in line with each other unless you do so... Parliament? (laughs) Either by Parliament uh, or with a deliberate intention of of manipulating the law. Yeah. So it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere, that problem. I don't know. I suppose the Supreme Court might 
in the um, sea in Sheffield case take the opportunity of commenting on the law more broadly, but I can't see that it arises on the particular facts of that case, so I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the right vehicle for the discussion. You mentioned an authority for the proposition that you can issue the claim and then make an interim before deferring the rest of the claim. And I think you found that, haven't you? Yes, there are, in fact, more than one. There is more than one case, but there's in one in particular which I was thinking of, which is uh, His Honour Judge Walden Smith sitting as a Section 9 judge called Andreo against S.B. Horrocks and Sun Limited. Uh, which was in 2017. Christopher, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of experience with us. I'm sure our listeners will have been as interested as I am to hear you talk about these things. Thank you for sharing your time with us. It's been very interesting, and these are very interesting topics, and it's particularly exciting that this particular issue, which has been troubling me for a number of years, will, I hope, now be resolved finally by the Supreme Court. I hope I haven't put you off podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder maybe you'll join us again, maybe later in the year, for a bit more of a a This Is Your Life type episode. You can tell us about your best and worst cases and your favourite opponents and judges and so on. I don't know if I can twist your arm. Uh, Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Thanks also to our excellent production team, Bristol's own DBS Pro, and in particular, uh, Georgia. And thank you very much for listening to the Personal Injury Pod. If you'd like to find out more about St. John's Chambers or to get in touch with us, go to stjohnchambers.co.uk. 